Good to see everybody here this morning at Berean Bible Fellowship, and thank you so much for being out. Thank you, choir, also for the just over in the glory land. You know, it's not as far away as you think. Really, just a heartbeat, and we really don't know when that will be, but uh, we have that hope. That's a wonderful thing. Good to see you here all this morning once again. Let's take our Bibles. We're in Matthew chapter 22, and I think you probably have that place from where we read just a few moments ago. And if you'll just uh, get to that place once again, and I want to read verse 17, we'll have a word of prayer, and then we'll be looking uh, at today's message. Matthew 22, let me read verse 17, just uh, catch that one. Uh, Tell us, therefore, what thinkest thou? Is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar or not? So do you find a question in that verse? Yeah, pretty rousing one, really. And we'll talk about that a little bit. Is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar or not? With that in mind, let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll jump into the message today. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for this day you've given to us, and thank you for each person who could make it out today. Lord, we just pray that you would bless us now in this time of summer. Help us to be faithful to your house. And uh, also, Lord, uh, be with us and guide us in our footsteps and all that we do is Southern season gets underway, graduations are passed, people go on vacation, all sorts of different schedules and routines sometimes uh, kick into effect, but uh, all days are yours, all seasons are yours, and we thank you for this. Help us to remember that we belong to you and help us to have a heart to honor you and uh, help us to have a heart for the Lord's Day where we are today. Uh, Father, even now as we get to the place in the service where we especially uh, devote ourselves to uh, looking into your word, Uh, Give us, Lord, a freedom from distraction. Help us uh, not to be uh, taken up with plans or problems that we may uh, be dealing with in the balance of the day or this afternoon or in this new and coming week, but uh, give us special help and guidance from the Holy Spirit so that right now we could listen with an undivided heart, help us with physical distractions. Some are weary, tired, and, and sometimes there are other things that trouble us, but Uh, We just pray, Father, you will take control. You will be honored. We pray that we'll be successful as the Holy Spirit ministers in seeing the Lord Jesus Christ receive the preeminence and that men and women and boys and girls will be drawn to him. For each of God's children here today, this is our prayer that each heart may be ministered to. Everyone will find something from the message today that can be used as we listen uh, and as you minister. And then, Lord, should we have anybody here today who doesn't know Christ as Savior? If, If there's someone... Uh, with any doubt about that. We just pray that you'll always be working, always be drawing, always be wooing, and always be calling. And Lord, uh, even if today would be the day, we would rejoice if someone comes under the sound of the gospel and and surrenders his heart, her heart, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Bless any that are dealing with others and other places in the building. Uh, Give them liberty, freedom, and blessing also. And we thank you now for these things and what we look forward to of this particular day in Jesus' wonderful name, I pray, amen. Well, they asked him this. I was wondering as I contemplated uh, that sermon title or that series title actually is what it is. They asked him this. Did you ever wish you could ask Jesus a question? I bet you have. But we don't quite have the opportunity that people had while Jesus was on the earth, but We're in good fortune in the sense that many of those questions are preserved for us in the Word of God, in the Gospel stories especially. We've been looking at some of those. Some of them are quite interesting. I think the largest grouping of those questions, as I've mentioned, seems to be coming from the disciples, which I think we can all identify with, right? If we profess to know Christ as Savior, that places us into the category of a disciple. 
And uh, many times they ask questions that they, they got as a result of listening to Jesus talk or observing some situation, but there always seems to be some application there for us. Other people ask questions too, and we're kind of getting into a situation in Matthew 22 where we're going to find three questions uh, that come from uh, Jesus' uh, opponents. And so we're kind of shifting gears because back in chapter 19, kind of interesting, we had three questions in that chapter also. We finished our coverage of those. They were, they were uh, pretty much all from um, those uh, disciples' types of questions. But now we come to a place where we have Jesus' opponents asking him questions. And uh, this is kind of an interesting thing because... Uh, what causes this is the heart, I'll call them the provocative. If you, if you can let me use that word, but don't think of it in the negative sense. Jesus has just gotten t- done telling three rather provocative parables. So where we are in the, in, the, in the scheme of things is we're actually in what we would call Holy Week or Passion Week. In other words, if you think of the Easter season and think of it beginning on uh, what we call Palm Sunday, we've sort of just gone through that. So it's, it's on our minds a little bit. But what I want to do is set the stage for these questions. And so uh, what happens is when we get to Tuesday of that particular week, that's where we find these questions being asked. Now, what, are the, yeah, what sets the stage for that? Well, what stage sets the stage for that, for that is on Monday, what's happened is, is that Jesus has gone into the temple and he cleansed the temple. We talked about that a little bit. He turned over the, the tables of the money changers. He, he drove out those people who had made God's house instead of a house of prayer to become a house of merchandise. And so when that day comes to an end, Jesus leaves, goes out of the city itself, uh, perhaps to Bethany, spends the night there, comes back in in the morning, and he is confronted by these religious leaders. And if you want to drop back to verse 23 of chapter 21, you'll see this. It says, And when he was come into the temple, the chief priests and elders of the people came unto him as he was teaching. So they confront him now over what's happened the previous day. And they said unto him, By what authority doest thou these things, and who gave thee this authority? And and you remember that question. We won't go back over all of that ground. But Jesus is confronted with this. And of course, they're not honest with him, and so he doesn't give them a complete answer to their question. But what he does do is he addresses the real problem of the heart with these parables that he begins to tell. And first of all, you have the parable of the two sons. You remember that? The parable of the two sons. And, and uh, it ends with a rather pointed uh, uh, an application because verse 31 says, Whether of them twain did the will of his father, they say unto him the first, then saith Jesus unto them, Verily I say unto you that publicans and harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. And so that doesn't really set too well with them. And again, I'm trying not to, to spend a lot of time on this, but I think it is important. Then in verse 33, look, here another parable, and this is the parable of the householder, and this is where it really gets tense. Do you remember the story of the parable of the householder? In essence, what you have is you have a certain uh, man who owns a vineyard, Um, He lets it out to various people who are charged with the oversight of it. They're supposed to manage it in such a way that uh, ultimately the fruits belong to the man who owns the vineyard. So when it comes time for that to happen, he sends his servants, and the parable tells us that uh, they shamefully entreated those, those, maltreated those people and sent them packing. And this happens about twice. And finally, as the story progresses and kind of reaches a climax, Uh, He decides to send his son. He figures that they will reverence his son. 
But when the son comes, they look at him and say, oh, look, here's the heir. And so they not only treat him shamefully, but they actually slay him. And then Jesus asks a question unto them, uh, unto them about this. Verse 40, look at this. When the Lord of the vineyard cometh, what will he do unto those husband, husbandmen? And of course, the backdrop of all of this is that in the Old Testament, you have some, some, sim, uh, some symbolism of the vineyard referring to the nation of Israel. So this, this is uh, not too thinly veiled. But they, they, they fall right into it. Look at verse 41. They say unto him, he will miserably destroy uh, those wicked men and will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen, which shall render unto him his, the fruits in their season. And the Lord begins then to draw the application. Jesus said unto him, Did you never read in the scripture the stone which the builders rejected? The same has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say unto you, now does this get pointed or what? The kingdom of God shall be taken away from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. And whoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. Well, they not only realize he's talking about them, they realize they've sort of unwittingly condemned themselves. All right, and so what do the next verses say? Because this is immediately now what sets the stage. And when the chief priests and Pharisees had heard his parables, they perceived that he spoke of them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitude because they took him for a prophet. Same thing that had happened before in the situation with John the Baptist. Remember, we can't answer your question. Is John a prophet from heaven? Because if we say no, the people have high regard for him. So they fear the people. So what happens if you really desire to apprehend someone and you have animosity towards someone and you want to find a way, but you can't do it openly? You begin to scheme, right? That's exactly what happens. And whereas Matthew tells us that he told them one more story, the account in Mark and the account in Luke go straight from where we just ended our reading right into what we're doing today. But Matthew, who writes to the Jews with a special interest and, and tells them this additional parable, but then if you think about it that way, if you think about coming right from their reaction in verse 45 to where we are now, then you'll see what goes on. Then sent the Pharisees and took counsel how they might entangle him in his talk. So you can see what's going on. And they ask a question that has to do with tribute. Boy, I'll tell you what, if you're going to really stir a, a crowd up, just start talking about taxes. Right? I mean, it's controversial now. You don't have to do much to get me going. You don't want to do that. If we start, if we start talking about Pennsylvania raising the gasoline tax, you don't want to go there. We'll spend the rest of the time this morning on that. And I don't want to go there either, but I'm just kind of showing you that you want to get a crowd stirred up. You, you want to find something controversial. Now, you've lit into one right there, haven't you? And they realize this, and so the whole game plan is to entangle him in his words. But what becomes interesting is to try to figure out how that, was, how that trap was set and then see how Jesus responds to it. Because ultimately, as we do that, uh, then we're, we're going to encounter, and this is what the message will be about as we get towards the end and get to these, some very helpful principles that Jesus gives us about the relationship of God and government. 
And did you know that we have that in the Bible and plenty of instruction and guidance in the Bible about that? And, and it's really very helpful to us as Christians sometimes to be reminded of those things. I'm not sure I'm going to say anything this morning you haven't heard before. I'm not sure I'm worried about it. I just think it's important oftentimes for us to hear the scriptures, be reminded. And as we hear the scriptures, the Holy Spirit makes the applications that, of things that may be going on in our lives at the time and things that we need to hear. So we're going to work down through this. First of all, let's talk a little bit about this plot. So the subject of tribute, verses 15 through 17, is where we find this plot of theirs. They went, then the Pharisees, and took, went the Pharisees and took counsel how they might entangle him in his talk. So this is the idea of to ensnare or to set a trap for someone. And so they have a question that's designed to do that. And so they say in the next verse, after they butter him up about how he always speaks and doesn't care what people think and tells the truth, then they come out with the question, which is verse number 17. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar or not? So what is meant by tribute? I mean, can we just talk about taxes in general, or can we be more specific? We can actually be more specific in this particular case. Certainly, you can make applications in a broad sense to tax, but this is a very specific tax. This is what you would call the poll tax. Now, P-O-L-L, right? So do, do you have that here, where you pay taxes here? Nobody seems to know. You must not have it because you'd know if you had it. Okay, I see Dorcas shaking your head no. Well, I'll tell you what. If you live in Huntington Borough, we have it. And they're commonly called nuisance taxes. Twice a year, you get to pay Huntington Borough $10 for the privilege of working there. So I said, you don't want to get me going on this, especially when... <laughs> especially when I realize that already on another time in the year you pay out a good chunk that they're included in that. It seems like it, they've got this thing reversed. Doesn't it seem that way to you? I mean, it really, I mean, if, why should I pay them $10 for the privilege of taxing there by, by working there? I'm working there paying them taxes. It seems like it's going the wrong way. But they're called nuisance taxes. That's what this really is. And uh, there's, a, there's a precise way this, this, this wording is set up so that we can understand that that's exactly what was going on. Now, do you think the Jews would have any problems with that? Well, yeah, they really had two problems at least with it. Okay, first of all, who was levying the tax was the Roman government. So right away they had a problem with this because many of them looked at it from the standpoint of the fact that these were subjugators, these were conquerors. Why should we pay them taxes? It just sort of ground on them a little bit that they had to pay taxes to the Roman government, period, because they resented the fact that they were subjected and the fact that they had a foreign power that was extracting uh, money from them and so forth. So already there was a little bit of a rub here. But this is kind of interesting because later in the story when Jesus says, show me the, show me the coin, show me the penny, this was the denarius. Well, do you know that we actually have... The denarius was a specific Roman coin, and we actually have. those. Some of those have been found, and if you look at one of those, um, 
The heat, Jesus asked them about whose image and, and superscription, or we would say inscription, is this? And they gave him the right answer. It was Caesar. Well, if you look at this particular coin, and you can go online and find this and look at it for yourself, but uh, here's what it has to say because this is where there's another rub. No problem with the name Tiberius Caesar. He was the Roman emperor between AD 14 and 37, so that's the time period that we're in, right? Okay, but as you know anything about the Roman government, the, the phrase then went on to say Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. Well, now you get a little problem, right, for a Jew. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And of course, later, this became a real issue with the Christian. Who is Lord, Jesus or Caesar? And, and that was something that could be turned and, and made a, a great difficulty for, for the Christians if it were turned in the sense of a guy like Nero coming along who, who was intent on persecuting Christians, this could become a real issue. But all I'm trying to say to us now is this, this had a double rub. Not only was this a Roman-imposed uh, tax, but the coin itself had something that, that tended to inflame many people in that audience. Now, did you know we actually have something in the Bible on this? You've probably read this a number of times and haven't realized that this is what it is. But this actually takes us, though it's later in the Bible, turn to Acts chapter 5. Keep your fingers here, but turn to Acts chapter 5. So it gives the appearance, because it's five books later, four books later in the Bible, that it's, that it's later in time, but it's really not. It's actually before the time of the story that we're reading in Matthew that this reference occurs. In Acts chapter 5, look at verse 37. And uh, what this is coming from is, is, this is when Gamaliel is giving his advice to the council about what to do with the apostles. And he makes reference, he says in verse 37, After this rose up Judas of Galilee in the days of the, what's that next word? Taxing. Interesting. And drew away much people after him. He also perished. And all, as, even as many as obeyed him, were dispersed. Well, that's, <laughs> he, he also perished is kind of a nice way of saying it. that was crushed. And this was actually in the year AD 6 when uh, the first Roman governor tried to uh, impose a poll tax on the Jews. And it didn't go over very well. And this man tried to lead a revolt against it. And of course, anytime you try to lead a revolt against Rome, that doesn't usually prosper and, and that re revolt, as Gamaliel points out, was crushed and his followers were dispersed. So there's a lot of background to this question. And it was designed to be a trap. Okay, so how does the trap work? Here's how the trap works. If Jesus had answered yes, then obviously he would alienate a large segment of his, of his audience who were already offended by the fact that the Roman government was imposing the tax and others who didn't care for what the coin said so he would offend a, lar a large portion, portion of his audience by doing that, all those who belong to the Tea Party, I guess, whatever. But uh, if he answered no, what do you suppose would have happened? Well, of course, then you would be exposed to uh, problems with the Roman government. As we already saw, Judas, when he tried to lead that type of a, a rebellion, was crushed. Now, does this make sense? Well, it absolutely does, because let's again turn to a scripture. Again, keep your text here, but go, we're going over to Luke chapter 20, which is where the uh, Lucan account is. So he's going to provide us with a little detail here that uh, sort of really kind of cinches the point that I'm making now. Luke chapter 20, 
And let's notice verse number 20. It says, and they watched him and sent forth, this is from the story now, and they watched him and sent forth spies which should feign, uh, which should present themselves as just men that they might take hold of his words so that they might deliver him unto the power and authority of the governor. That was see the trap. And the next verse says, Master, we know that thou sayest and teachest. In truth, is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? There's the other side of the trap. And just so you can really see how, uh, how volatile this could be, turn over also in Luke to chapter 23, because when they were looking for witnesses, when they were looking for those who would give accusation against Jesus, they found people who came forward and brought up that very point, even though it wasn't true. Luke 23, 2, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to give tribute to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ the king. So do you begin to see just how volatile this subject really was? And they really thought they had him. They thought there was absolutely for him no way out of this box. Well, let's find out whether there was a way out of the box or not. Can you put God in a box? Good luck. And that's uh, sort of what the next thing that we, we see as we keep working towards these principles is perception. Because in verses 18 and 19, look what it says right away. But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why tempt ye me, ye hypocrites? Show me the tribute money. And they brought unto him a penny. This is the coin, the actual coin that was in dispute here. Jesus perceived their wickedness. Isn't it silly to think that you can deceive God? And yet so many people, even Christian people, seem to labor under the idea that you can deceive God. Maybe it's just because the heart's deceitful and we deceive ourselves. So we deceive ourselves and somehow think that we can deceive other people. And to be sure, there are times when we're successful if we want to do that. It was Abraham Lincoln who said, you can fool all the people some of the time and some of the people all the time, but you can't fool all the people all the time. I'll just add to that, you can't fool God any of the time. And if we think that perhaps we have at times been successful in hiding our motives from people, when our motives are not altogether pure and right, you can mark it down. God always sees that. You cannot fool God. God always sees what's in our hearts. And Jesus picks up on their wickedness, the Bible says in that verse. Jesus perceived their wickedness, that is to say their hostile intent, what they were trying to accomplish. Going right back to chapter 21, verse 46, they sought to lay hold on him, but they feared the multitude because they took him for a prophet. It was just another way to try to accomplish their end of getting a hold of Jesus and eliminating him and taking him out of the scene. But it also says that Jesus perceived their hypocrisy. This is kind of interesting. Why tempt ye me, ye hypocrites? It says Jesus realized immediately their hip hypocrisy. Whether they realized it or not, I'm not sure. But it's kind of interesting because there are at least two places that we see hypocrisy. First of all, if you back up earlier in the story, you'll notice that it says in verse 15, it was the Pharisees who took counsel. But when they actually sent the, the, the errand boys to do the, 
to do the job. It says in verse 16, and they sent out unto him their disciples with the Herodians. You know, that's a really interesting detail because under any normal circumstances, the Pharisees and the Herodians were enemies. They didn't get along because the Pharisees were, were not, the Herodians were, were basically people who were Roman sympathizers and who, who had no difficulties or, 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 you know, basically in the eyes of the Pharisees willing to sell their nation out in order to curry favor with Rome and advance themselves. And that was looked on by the Pharisees as <clears throat> bordering on being a traitor. But again, you've heard another saying about the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And that's kind of, you know, enemies make strange bedfellows sometimes, and that's exactly what's going on here. They league up with these people. There's a second way that you can <clears throat> readily see the hypocrisy that's going on here is because here they are trying to catch Jesus in a question about the coin. But when Jesus gets ready to answer the question, he says in verse 19, show me the tribute money. What's it say? They brought him a penny. They had the coin. They were obviously using the coin. You don't read about any of them being arrested, do you? Right? Now here they are trying to entrap Jesus, but yet even though maybe the Pharisees and those who thought in those terms didn't like it, you don't read about any of them being cart carted off to jail. They were, they were using the coin. They were paying the tax, and yet they sought to get Jesus in trouble over this question. So Jesus has all this figured out. Uh, he sees the heart. He sees the duplicity. Got, to, got tickled this week about a story that I wanted to pass along to you because you often find these uh, in, in the... Uh, many times you find these in the legal arena, but of course you find them in all, all types of... This particular story concerned a very capable lawyer, British lawyer, actually. In fact, he was actually the attorney general, the British attorney general, uh, back in the earlier part of the last century from 1915 to 19. But he was, a very, he was a very gifted attorney, and on one particular occasion, he had a client uh, who was a bus driver. And he was defending the bus driver because there was a man who claimed that through the negligence of the bus driver, he had been injured, and he claimed that he had suffered an injury to his arm. And so when the attorney had the opportunity to cross-examine him, he said, could you show us, since the accident, how high you're able to raise your hand, the, one that, the arm, the one that you say was hurt? And he, he grimaced and, you know, definitely got a pained look on his face and kind of got it up about to the level of his shoulder. All right, thank you very much. He said, now could you show us how high you were able to raise your arm before the accident? <laughs> and he shot it straight up with a, a smile on his face. Well, he lost the case because obviously his duplicity was, uh, was revealed and the attorney was pretty perceptive, a little bit like our Lord was perceptive, maybe not quite coming up to the Lord standing, but was perceptive about human nature and could kind of see uh, what was going on in the thing. And of course, we have a lot of that today, right? So it goes on, right? And yeah, anyway, so let's get to these principles. This is kind of really what we want to get to, and I think we have enough time to do reasonable justice to this. But at the end of the story, beginning verse now, uh, verse 20, so Jesus says to them, whose image and superscription or whose image, and we, again, our word today would be inscription, they say unto him, Caesar's. 
Then saith he unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things which are God's. And look at the, the way this ends. When they heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. Well, so much for their trap, so much for their box that they thought they had him in. Jesus takes one coin and asks one question and blows them away. And folks, I would just say, I mean, we, we kind of smile at this and, and delight in it because we're glad that Jesus showed them up. But it's scary in a sense because God really does know what's in our hearts. And if we think our silly arguments are going to fool God, it's about as silly as these people were thinking that they were going to trap Jesus so what happens? How does this all really work? Well, first of all, Jesus is demonstrating that there are two realms that are in view. What are those two realms? Well, whose image? Caesar's. What realm is that? That's the realm of human government, or we might say civil authority. Whose image? But who else bears an image? So let's go back to the book of Genesis, all right? Genesis chapter 1. You can go all the way back to the back. There shouldn't be anybody with an excuse not to be able to find Genesis chapter 1. It's easy to find this. Let's see how this actually works. So Genesis 1 verse 27 says, So God created man in his own, what's that word? Image. In the image of God made he him, male and female created he them. So man is created in God's image, and so we have two realms that are under consideration. We have the civil realm, and we have the spiritual realm. We have being a good citizen, and we have being a godly believer. The question is, are those mutually exclusive? Well, not if you understand the Bible properly, and that's what we want to look at here. So what happens between Genesis chapter 1? Let's go over to Genesis chapter 6. And, of course, intervening is that nasty event that we call the fall. That changes everything, and very shortly after the fall, you have the first. It starts with an M. Murder. What's that really mean besides the fact that thou shalt do no murder, which is later a part of the moral law and a part of the Ten Commandments there? What's that really mean? Well, it means a lot until, and it gets bad really, because by the time you get to Genesis chapter 6, where you are now, look at what we read. The wickedness of man was great in the earth, the Bible says. And what was a big part of that wickedness? Look at verse 11. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. Do we have a lot of violence in this world? Oh, my folks, it's awful. And so finally, God, after the flood, because between now and chapter 9, where we want to get to, the flood occurs. God deals with this problem, but now people are living on the earth again, and the fall has happened, and we've already seen the results when human... Beings are unrestrained. Ultimately, what position do we get ourselves into? Well, we get ourselves into a position where there's a great deal of violence and corruption in the earth. So who is to restrain fallen man? And in Genesis chapter 9, verse 5, we have the first institution of what we would today call human government. 
And God says this, And surely your blood of your lives will I require at the hand of every beast will I require it, and at the hand of man, at the hand of every man's brother will I require the life of man. Well, obviously God does this through human agency, right? This is not God just zapping people from heaven. He's doing this through human agency and sets up a punishment in verse number 6. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. Why? For in the image of God made he man. So we believe from this in what we would call the sanctity of human life. Human life is different than plant life. It's even different than animal life. And while I personally believe that we are charged by God to be good stewards, and we have not always been good stewards of the earth, I'll give you that. If you want to preach about environmental issues and those types of things, then talk about the fact that God entrusted man with dominion over the earth. And has man really carried out that dominion in a way that honors God? Not always. So you can talk about those subjects. But don't tell me about the animals being the same as human beings, because it's not so. They were not created in the image of God. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't. There's many principles that we can have in the Bible. I think you understand where I'm coming from. But we believe in the sanctity of human life. God ordains at this juncture human government, because who's going to protect us from each other? And it comes to that sometimes. Someone has done a good job, I think, of summarizing what the function of human government is, and we're going to look at some scriptures that bear on this in a moment, but I'll give you the three if you want to just jot them down. I think this is a great way of putting it. First of all, the function of protection. So this is what we're talking about now. Um, the restraint, so that uh, citizens are, are kept from damaging one another or hurting or harming one another. And you have an example of this in Romans, or rather, I'm sorry, Acts chapter 21, where uh, Paul was in the temple, there was a riot in the temple, and they were getting ready to pull him apart. You remember that story? And the Roman captain came down and intervened and stopped these Jews in this riot from killing Paul. Well, that's, you're kind of glad you can call the police if you get into a situation where you need help like that, right? So that's certainly a role of human government. <clears throat> Another one is punishment. And we're told this any number of places. Romans chapter 13 or, or 1 Peter chapter 2 are the great places to go in the Bible for this, where Romans 13 says, He beareth not the sword in vain. So you don't have the Bible not endorsing capital punishment. You have the Bible endorsing capital punishment. And don't tell me about the fact that it doesn't work if you're not going to make a concerted, honest, before God effort to really enforce it and use it. I think we had a story this week about um, one of the states up in the Northeast. Uh, I won't mention it because I don't, I, I think I know which one, but I don't want to get it wrong. And, uh, but I, as, uh, now making uh, capital punishment illegal. Well, do we have greater wisdom than God? Really? And I, I think we have to be off very, very careful. I mean, sometimes... You know, you, you need an absolute case for this. But you don't want to take that card off the table because if you apply that with absolute justice and with absolute fairness and equity, it is a deterrent. And that's why God places it there. And that We get to the end then. We have the function of promotion. 
Um, what is that? Well, this is what Paul is talking about in 1 Timothy chapter 2, where he says that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. So you're grateful for the peace, right? And sometimes you refer to a law officer as a peace keeper or a peace officer because their job is to keep the peace. So these are functions of human government, but what, what in the world is the Lord doing here? Well, the whole thing that the Lord is trying to demonstrate is that after the fall, you and I live in a world in which we, we, we're actually a part of both, right? We're a part of bearing God's image, so we're a part of that realm, the spiritual realm, but we're also living in a fallen world in which now God has ordained human government for the various reasons that we've mentioned, so we're living in the civil realm as well, and you know what? We have responsibilities to both. The question is, can you discharge them both or is there some sort of inherent conflict, which is the whole idea that the Pharisees were trying to trap Jesus by posing this inescapable question that you can't reconcile these two things? Well, the Lord simply says, render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's and to God the things which are God's. Simple answer. The two are not meant. Let me, let me be careful that you hear me correctly. The two are not meant to be in conflict with one another. There is not a mutual exclusivity that's designed into that. They're meant to function together. Does that always work out? Maybe not always, but the way God designed it and the way it's supposed to work is so that you and I can be both good citizens and godly believers at the same time. That's what God wants of us. That's exactly what Jesus said. It's, it's why he answered the question and they thought to themselves that they had nothing they could say. Neither do you and I, really. And you already know, and this is maybe what you're worried about, so I'll, I'll address this before the message is over. What do you do if there is a real conflict between the two? Now, not one that you disagree, okay? Because we got lots of those, and that's why talking about taxes would be a, a good way to you know, get everybody all... <laughs> ready to have a fist fight. But what do you do, for example, um, we start off relatively early in the Bible, in the book of Exodus. If you want to look at one, uh, we'll take just time for one and I'll remind you of the others. But look at Exodus chapter 1. So in verse 16, here's what Pharaoh tells the midwives. When you do the office of a midwife... And see them upon, for the Hebrew women, and see them upon the stools. If it be a son, then ye shall kill him, it says. But if it be a daughter, she shall live. What's the next verse say? But the midwives feared God. And this is a problem that we have, and we have a very, uh, because we're dealing with fallen men. And so we have a very broad term that we use for this, and basically the broad term is government overreach. When human government, these folks who are literally placed there and ordained by God for the purposes that we mentioned a moment ago, get beyond themselves and at times create laws and ordinances which directly conflict with God's moral law, well, when that happens, and, and that's, that's not because you disagree with the local nuisance tax, right? This is legitimately something like 
uh, we've seen a number of instances as our society kind of moves more and more this way where our religious liberties uh, are being threatened and we've, we've had the cases of the baker and the wedding cake and all of that kind of stuff. We've had seen so many of these different things happen. Well, and you can, you can go on through the Bible and you've got Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Nebuchadnezzar said, fall down and worship my image. And they said, we can't do that, O king. Then you get to the book of Acts and they said to the apostles, we don't want you to speak or teach anymore in the name of Jesus. If you want to look at this one, you can look in Acts chapter 4. This is where I, the last one I want to actually refer to, but I do want to read some of the verses. So if you want to see that, I'm in Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4 says, And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all or teach in the name of Jesus. And you know, this is wonderful, folks, because Peter and John are there and they're not rednecks. It doesn't do you any good to be that way. They were respectful. They simply said to them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, you be the judge of that. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Well, they didn't have much they could say to that. And they got rearrested, and so we come over to chapter 5, and here's the way that, that, that they handled that when we get to verse 28, saying, Did not we straightly command you that ye should not teach in this name? And behold, ye have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine, and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. It's Peter again. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. Well, folks, aren't you glad we've lived in America and been born in America where for the most part, we have not had this type of problem. All these years, since 1776, we've lived in this land where our country was founded on Judeo-Christian principles. And that certainly doesn't mean that we've been a Christian nation necessarily all those years, but it certainly means that our founding and values emanated from the Bible. It's not too much to say that because those are the scriptures of the Judeo-Christian heritage the Bible that we have here, the Old and the New Testament. And for the most part, Christians have had the protection of that and the acknowledgement of that. But we're living in a day where increasingly there's hostility towards that. And we will just have to pray that God will spare us. Just know that if the day comes that we get it placed into a position, and, and if you think that this is outlandish, I'm, I'm not trying to worry you, but I'm telling you, it's around. When our current governor took office in Pennsylvania, one priority that he had was what became known as the so-called bathroom bills. When that happened, I told the people at Calvary in Huntington, we have to do something. Because our doctrinal statement, probably a lot like yours, is a very good doctrinal statement, nothing wrong with it, but it was written in a day when nobody thought you had to talk about the sanctity of, human ma uh, the sanctity of marriage or any of those types of things. It was taken for granted that everyone accepted that. And I pointed out to our leadership, you know, if we are going to have any protection against this kind of thing, it won't be in what we say we believe. It will be found in our written documents. And it was a, a super high threshold, and rightly so, to modify our doctrinal statement. But we explained what we were doing, called a meeting for it, and the, the, the statement that we added concerning Christian marriage and all of that type of thing 
was unanimously approved as an addition and a modification of our doctrinal statement. Why did we do that? Because I told the people of our church, I'm telling you this right now, I'm not going out looking for trouble. I don't mind having a family bathroom, which you kind of almost have the equivalent of that here. But when the day comes that they tell us that people can come in here and walk into our bathrooms, whichever one they choose to walk into, that's going to be the day there's going to be a problem here because we aren't going to allow that. The same people that tell you that a woman has a right to an abortion because of her inherent right of privacy are now telling you that a man who identifies as a woman can walk into a woman's restroom. There's something a little bit shaky about the conflict of those two ideas because if you have a right to privacy over here, you ought to have a right to privacy over here. Am I looking for that? No. I don't need that kind of problem. You don't need that kind of problem. But if the day comes where we get put in that kind of position, then we have to look to God. And I want to close by reading you uh, something that I found very touching. Um, It strikes somewhat close to home because this is a young lady who's serving as a missionary, and her church sent her to Iraq in, uh, I'm not sure what year they actually sent her, but in on March the 15th of 2004, she was killed by unknown assailants. And later, an envelope was found, and it was marked on the envelope, open in the case of death. So inside was a letter. Here's part of what it said. Dear Pastor Phil and Pastor Roger, You should only be opening this in the event of death. When God calls, there are no regrets. I tried to share my heart with you as much as possible. My heart for the nations. I wasn't called to a place. I was called to him. To obey was my objective. To suffer was expected. His glory, my reward. The missionary heart cares more than some think is wise, risks more than some think is safe, dreams more than some think is practical, expects more than some think is possible. I was called not to comfort or to success, but to obedience. There is no joy outside of knowing Jesus and serving him. I love you too, and my church family in his care, Shalom, Karen. Well, I say you do two things today. I think, first of all, you say praise the Lord for the freedom that we still enjoy. And there isn't an inherent conflict. We want to do everything that we can to be good citizens and not to ruin our testimony by not being good citizens, while always keeping deep within our hearts the realization that the day could come when we really are called on to find out if our faith really matters to us and if we really believe what we say we believe, when we really are put into a real, not a difference of opinion, but a real conflict because of Caesar asking something of us that violates God's law. If that's the case, the problem is encountered because man is overstepping his bounds. 
God never intended human government to make laws contrary to his own. Don't go home and, you know, be taking a spiritual pulse all the time. Don't go home and fret. Don't go looking for trouble. Rejoice that we're here today, that we have this freedom. But all the while, be aware and prepare your heart and be willing to take the stand that the Lord brings your way, whether it's something like that or something else that's less difficult than that, but still a real stand that needs to be taken. Heavenly Father, we thank you that today we're here. We have absolutely no fear. No one outside, no guns, no law officers, nobody threatening to arrest us when we leave because we were here at Brian Bible Fellowship, because we all brought a Bible in here today, because we gave two graduating seniors Bibles. Nobody here to threaten us because of that, and we thank you. Because we know there are many places around the world where this freedom does not exist. And we ask that you forgive us for our complacency. Help us to be good citizens. Help us to be the salt and light that you've called us to be also as citizens of the kingdom. But at the same time, Lord, may our hearts be prepared as we see storm clouds here and there on the horizon. We pray that you'll keep them far away. But, Lord, should they come, we pray that you'll help us to be firm, to be real, to be dedicated, and to be committed. And we'll thank you for placing that resolve and that courage, knowing that if that day should ever come, we may not have that grace today, but in that hour, we will. And we thank you for it in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Let's take our songbooks. We're going to close today with page 593. So you can broaden this. Don't worry about having to give your life right today, but we do need to be able to take stands as God puts us in that position. So let's take our songbooks and we'll turn. 593 says, Dare to Stand. Let's stand together. Dare to stand up. Dare to stand up.